MNK Talk YA now presents A Conjuring of Light, Part 1 of the Shades of Magic series by V.E. Schwab. Welcome back to MNK Talk YA. I'm Katie Bradford. And I'm Marissa Snyder. And this is our Young Adult Fiction Podcast. And this week we're talking about the first half of A Conjuring of Light. I forgot what this book was called for a second. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the third book in the Shades of Magic trilogy by V.E. Schwab. And we read up to part eight, Unchartered Waters. I'm actually really excited that we still have half a book left because... I don't want it to end. <laughs> I know. I'm I'm excited we have half a book left too, but I'm also really nervous because we said at the beginning there were a few things we had to learn or we would call, what did we say? Trilogy fail? Yeah, trilogy fail. That was the phrase. And we have to, and so far none of the questions have been answered, so I'm a little nervous that we only have half a book to figure out who Kel is, where he came from, who his parents were, and to find the same thing out about Lila. Like, I really want to know what Lila is and where she came from and who took her eye out. And okay. is she Antari? Is she more? Well, uh. we, we know more about who Lila is. And I think we've gotten a little bit more just because we've seen Amira. What's the queen's name? Oh, um, Amira. Amira's perspective. Amira? Her perspective of a couple of things. So there's been a little bit more partial, like, flashback. So no actual questions have been answered, but I feel like we're starting... We're getting there. Yeah, it could happen. I hope so. I don't remember what we learned about Lila. Well, I guess... Okay, maybe we haven't learned that much about her, but I feel like her... The secrets that we already knew as readers are now more public to the characters as a whole. And we have learned that she can perform magic. She can travel throughout the worlds by herself. Mm -hmm. But she also was using Antari magic without using her blood because remember like at the very beginning which thank god there was no it, it took place about two seconds like we predicted after the end of the second book there yes. was <laughs> no time gap which was great she when she went back to save Cal and um when he finally got the collar off him she healed him without using blood magic and so I was like "Ooh, what is she because that's something that even Antari can't do Wait, I didn't realize she didn't use blood magic. I guess I just assumed that she did use blood magic, but she wasn't. She didn't have any blood. I don't think so. I think she healed him and just said the words, but didn't um, didn't use blood magic. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I remembered. No, that that could be right. I remember she did cut herself before she went between the worlds. Oh, maybe that's. But it. by the time she got there, well, she was also she was bleeding because she had just been stabbed in the face. And I don't know if this works, but. Could she have used Kel's blood for her magic? Or maybe that's not a thing you can do. Oh, maybe. Because his blood, yeah, it sounds like, right. was everywhere. That was crazy when she killed Ajka. Yeah, especially because I thought we would hear more about Ajka. I wonder if we'll hear it. Me too. Now that we're getting Holland's backstory, which I really want that for some of our other main characters, some of these flashbacks, but it's been kind of fun. Um, I'm kind of curious if it'll go all the way to like when he came back from Black London. Or if it'll just kind of be his story before the Dane twins. I know. Okay. We did get a lot of backstories. Um, 
And I'm curious about that too. All right, let's. Do you want to talk about Hollands first? Sure. Okay. So we learned that a lot of people were trying to kill him. Yeah, I actually. Yeah. <laughs> he's such. I'm like so. I actually love that we're getting backstory about him because I think he's so interesting and. Because we don't have any other context for people who've interacted with him or even really white London besides what we're getting from him right now. It's like, I mean, Kel, Rye, Lila, I feel like there's enough other kind of context clues. We can kind of put them into a story. But Mm -hmm. Holland was sort of just like, was he a villain? Was he a hero? Is he like Kel? Is he not? And now I, I like that we're just kind of starting to get to know him more. But I'm curious, how old is he? That's a good question, because he was, we just get bits bits and pieces, like he was eight when his eye turned color. Which is also interesting, so I guess whenever Kel, Kel probably was not born with an Antari eye, so maybe whatever happened at five was when his eye changed and they brought him to the palace, as opposed to Mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it being hidden for five years. Yeah, and and it was just so sad seeing Holland trusting people because we in the flashbacks we get like three separate flashbacks where first his brother tries to kill him Ugh, and then yeah. his it which was so sad because he was so young and he was like the only family he had left and then his girlfriend tried to kill him and not just his girlfriend like it sounds like they were living together i mean like yeah. it wasn't like Girlfriend's he went on a couple dates term. yeah right I don't even know which betrayal is worse. I was thinking about this because in some ways it sounded like his brother had been kind of like had been changing, like he had some kind of indicators and maybe they had both had a really tough life and not that that made it okay, but in some ways I almost felt like the girlfriend or whatever we want to call her betrayal was worse because it seemed like it really came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think so too. And especially since... Yeah, there wasn't any indication that she was going to turn on him. And it's just so sad that it was the money that is what came down to it. Like, she was going to kill him for money. And yeah, I get that the idea of magic is super valuable in white London. But I don't know. It just seemed so callous. Well, and it has to make you question, like, did she really like him at first and then someone approached her? Or did yeah. she always go, you know, befriend was him? Was she targeting him because of yeah, his power? Yeah, exactly. And how do you trust anyone after that? Like, if you're Holland, how do you how do you trust anyone? And it really... Although, I guess I'm, I'm curious to see what happens now with this last man who tried to kill him, but then said he wants to use him to take down the king. Um, what's his name? V- Vortalis? Mm-hmm. I really want to know what's going to happen there. Because I hope we see him, like you said, trying to fight against the Dane twins and and get to see what happens. Well, my impression before was that didn't Kel or someone say something about how basically Holland did help turn on the king prior to the Dane twins? And it looked like he was going to be king, but then the Dane twins kind of came to power. and But yeah, no, I mean, I agree. Like what, who who were the Dane twins back then? Yeah. I'm so curious. But I, we saw Holland at the beginning of this series already a slave. Yep. And to kind of see his past and how tragic it is, it kind of makes you understand him better where he's just like not fighting at all at this point. And he is like, I've always been magic slave. He mm-hmm. says that to Kel. Mm-hmm. And it really just helps you understand why he's just completely given up. And he's just a broken man. And it's so sad. Yeah, and even though he's on Tari, he really has had such a different life from Kel. Yes, we have questions about Kel's first five years, 
But the truth is, he was raised in the palace as a prince. And I get it Mm -hmm. wasn't perfect, but what a different experience. So different. And it's also like, I love how um, when Kel confronts him and and he's saying, why would you accept a siren into you? As soon as you did that, you condemned Red London. And Holland was like, I was doing this to save, to try and save my kingdom. Like, I, I hadn't given up hope that my kingdom could be saved. And you guys in Red London did the exact same thing to us when you closed yourself off and made us um, fend for ourselves to fight Black London. Mm-hmm. So it's really like two Antari fighting for the safety of their kingdom, but just such a, in, in such different ways. Yeah, but I mean, again, when you're looking at it, Kel does have, even if it's not true like affinity for the whole royal family. I mean, his loyalty is to the kingdom, but almost more importantly to Rai. He has had that love and trust and relationship. Whereas Holland's kind of been raised on these stories about a savior. And that's the only kind of consistent thing. So people and relationships have kept betraying him. But this idea that someone could be a savior and maybe that's why he has this almost curse of power you know Mm -hmm. in white london is because he could be that savior for them the someday prince i love or the someday king i love that Mm -hmm. holland well okay and now so we're talking about white london we're talking about red london black london as far as we know is still just destroyed now that the the demons out of it but um Mm -hmm. what is going on in gray london I don't know. What is Ned up to? I, like, got really nervous for Ned. I was like, like, all the stuff that's happening in the other world doesn't make, like, but because Ned is in our world and, like, so oblivious, I I was so nervous for him. I agree. But you know what? (laughs) Reading about him made me think of a good fan name for fans of this series. Oh, I haven't even thought about it. Okay, what do you have? Okay, so I don't think there is an existing fan name for people who love Shades of Magic trilogy. But when I was reading about Ned, I thought we should call ourselves enthusiasts. Oh, I like that. For some reason, I thought you were going to say Ned heads. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. That is so good. <laughs> I like enthusiasts better, though. That's more appropriate. I don't know why. I was like, who's going to say Ned Heads? Like, that's just, just the thought that popped into my head. <laughs> oh, my God. That's fantastic. Well, I just thought, because, like, Ned reminds me of our of us, right? Because we're, we would live in Grey London, and we want magic to be real so badly. Mm-hmm. And we constantly, like, seek out books, a fantasy series, and weird tales of interdimensional time travel to, like, cling yeah. to this idea that magic's real. So yeah. I feel like we are the definition of enthusiasts. We are. I, no, I do, I do really like that. But the fact that we keep going back to Ned, I mean, I'm just curious to see how, I mean, the balance of power and magic and everything is shifting everywhere. I'm just curious mm-hmm. to see what does happen to Grey London. Yeah, and how big of a role Ned will play in the, upper, in the you know, battle against a siren. I kind of hope he has a big role. I accidentally just flipped to part nine <sighs> in my book and it's called Trouble. And it makes me wonder what the first eight parts were, if not trouble. The whole series has been nothing but trouble. (laughs) Well, of course, because Lila's one of the main characters, and all she does is look for trouble, so... Oh my gosh. I I hate that Kala's dead. I know, I was just gonna say that. I felt so bad whenever Lila went to try and find her, and she was dead. And, 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 like, you kind of understand why she, you know, keeps herself so isolated from people and won't let them in, because... 
Yeah, it's the more you care about someone, the more you have to lose, and it hurts. Well, true, but again, we still haven't gotten enough of her backstory to see where that originated from, because in a perfect world, she's what, 18, 19, something like that, right? Yeah. Like, her, she shouldn't have already been so abandoned that that's her natural reaction to anyone or anything that's kind to her. Yeah, I agree. We did learn, though, in the first book, and I don't think we mentioned this, that... Her mother died. We know her mother died, and we don't really know how, but we know that her father took care of her for a little bit, but then tried to, like, sell her to some guy to pay off his debts, and she, that I was the first man that. she killed. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is a pretty big betrayal, you True. know, especially coming from a parent. But I'm just curious if there's other things besides that that have made her so hesitant to open up to people. Mm-hmm. Or, like, how, when did her mother die? You know that? How? Yeah. yeah. No, we don't. And still, her eye, did they know, like, <sighs> it seems like her black eye is the missing one, right? Like, that's the assumption that we would make right, right now. So The one that shattered, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it would have been black because it seems she has the Antari magic, I think. So the question is, did someone take it to protect her? Did someone take it as a threat? Did something completely unrelated happen? Or, you know, I mean, like, I just, like... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to know. I want to know more. I actually, I, I looked up a lot about artificial eyes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Let's hear it. I'm actually curious to know how glass eyes are made. and. Yeah, that's what I looked up. So this is from madehow.com. Okay. And it's just about artificial eyes in general. So a natural eye can be lost for a variety of reasons. It could be injury. It could be disease. It could be something that you're born with. Um falling on a straw and it goes through your eyeball <laughs> my biggest fear someone throws a pencil at you that's one of my biggest fears um so i guess so most artificial eyes today are made out of plastic and they last about 10 years oh wow that's a long time although children obviously because of the rate of you know growth and change and whatnot mm-hmm. may go through as many as four to five between infancy and adulthood And according to the Society for the Prevention of Blindness, between 10,000 and 12,000 people per year lose an eye. Oh my goodness. And they say 50% or more are due to some kind of accident, and it's more likely that males will lose their eyes in an accident than women. Um, There's also a lot of inherited conditions that can cause either eye loss or the requirement for an artificial eye. So there's a a lot of different kind of birth defects where someone can be born blind or... um, have some other issue with their eye that would lead to needing a false eye. But early artificial eye creation, they think, was actually done more for decoration, for like religious or aesthetic purposes, than for actually like replacing an eye to... Wait, so they would take out a healthy eye and replace it with something? No, I think they would just make fake eyes on to like statues and art and things like that. Mummies tombs so they said um, like you know way back bc people of babylon jericho egypt china and the asian area had developed art and a belief in the afterlife and there's a lot of radiographs of mummies and tombs where artificial eyes made out of a variety of things from silver gold rock marble glass etc and also um aztec and inca tradition show that that was used kind of like as more of an art form than, hmm. you know, to replace an eye for... So not used on people, but used on art. Correct. 
Interesting. But they do think that the Egyptian artists were skilled enough that they were probably asked to create artificial eyes if royalty was afflicted with some, you know, if if the royal family would have needed it. But um, 1579 is when the first prosthesis to be worn behind the eyelids was created by the Venetians. Oh, oh, I guess Venetian glass. That probably makes sense. Yeah. Made out of Murano glass. It was, yeah, very thin shells of glass. And so it did not restore the lost volume of an atrophied or missing eyeball. And the edges would be really sharp or uncomfortable. So you were supposed to remove them at night so that you could like get relief from that and and also they're made of glass so they were very delicate that that blows my mind that they were actually made out of glass at one time because i mean think how dangerous would it it would be if it shattered and you have all those glass shards in your eye socket yeah but i'm thinking about lila the entire time with this like shattered eyeball in her head but also i mean i feel like we think the eye is so sensitive because of our eye like i wonder if you don't have an eye how sensitive is like is the socket? That's a good I, I don't question. know. I just know that you have different nerves in different places. I actually don't know the answer to that. But they actually they said that there were really no significant advances in artificial eyes between 1579 and the 19th century. Oh my goodness! But then there was this German glass blower named Ludwig Muller Uri, and he made really lifelike eyes for dolls. But he mm. also had a son who needed an artificial eye, so he developed a glass eye for his son. And I guess it took him like 20 years to get his design perfect, et cetera, et cetera. And they they say his success forced him to switch occupations to making artificial eyes full time. Oh my goodness. So even though he had originally been building dolls, he was so successful that he had to start making artificial eyes full time. That's kind of nice. I mean, that's like a nice way to help people. It does seem, I mean, as much as I love dolls growing up and I think they can do a lot of good for a young person, um, it does seem to matter on a different level I think yeah it's a bit of a higher calling I guess (laughs) (laughs) and then in 1880 there was a Dutch eye surgeon named Herman Snellen and he developed the reform eye design and this was a thicker hollow glass prosthesis with rounded edges and because it was a little bit thicker it restored most of the lost volume of the eye and it had more rounded edges so it was more comfortable and more realistic and at this time, Germany became the center for manufacturing artificial eyes. Whoa. All right. This is kind of an odd question. Do you have to have it um, professionally removed? Your eye? Put back in? Yeah. Like a glass eye. Is it something you can put in yourself or can you? There's a couple different kinds of surgeries. So they say there's two key steps in replacing a damaged or diseased eye. The first step is removing the natural eye. So you need an ophthalmologist or an eye surgeon to do that. And there's a couple different types of operations that you can have. Um, So there's one called the inoculation, which removes the eyeball by severing the muscles, which are connected to the scalera, which is the white of your Mm. eyeball. Okay. And then the surgeon cuts the optic nerve and removes the eye from the socket. And the implant is usually then placed into the socket. um, Professionally. Yeah. Okay. And then there's something else called evisceration, which is when the contents of the eyeball are removed. So in this operation, the surgeon makes an incision around the iris and removes like everything within the eyeball. And then some kind of ball of plastic or glass or something is placed inside the eyeball and the wound is closed up. Oh, okay. But it does sound like you would need surgery to do this. I guess maybe if your eye had been removed completely from some kind of accident, then maybe... I, I think you, you need a put, surgeon. It sounds like, I mean, it sounds like a pretty... 
I'm uh, sure. You, yeah. I'm sure you need a surgeon to do the initial work. I was just wondering if, <laughs> if you can replace it quick, like switch it out for a blue eye or a green eye or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, I didn't think you could take your own eyeball out, but maybe take a glass eye if you could switch out a glass eye yourself. Because I was thinking about. So, have you read The Twits by Roald Dahl? I have, but it's been so long. I haven't even thought about that in forever. There's, like, the one... I, I'm i pretty sure the woman has a glass eye, and she, like, takes it out and, like, puts it in her husband's drink as, like, a bad joke, and she, like, puts her glass eye around the house. Well, I mean... It the, just made me think of that. The ones that they made in the 1500s or whatever where you had to take it out every night, I would think that you could yeah. pop it back in yourself. So I, I, don't, I don't really know the details, I guess, of that part. Um, but it says it takes a patient... Four to six weeks to heal after surgery. And, okay, so Germany became, like I said, the center for manufacturing glass artificial eyes in the 18, late 1800s. But during World War II, we couldn't get glass eyes from Germany. And so that's when the United States started to find an alternative mm. method. So it was 1943 when the U.S. Army dental technicians made the first plastic artificial eye. And the advantage of plastic are that it's you know, more unbreakable than glass. It's malleable and whatnot. Oh, so I guess they were still not completely polished, so they would still kind of irritate the eye if if there was a poor fit. But then after World War II, German and American kind of came together, and I think that's the artificial eye we have today, which is hmm. the best. So the late 1960s, um, the modified impression method was developed by an American named Lee Allen, and this involved accurately duplicating the shape of the individual socket as well oh. as modifying the front surface to correct eyelid problems. So basically it just not just created a standard eye for everyone, but kind of looking yeah, at fit your face. Exactly. Yeah. Huh. That freaks me out a little bit. I won't, I won't even get LASIK. I'm too afraid to get LASIK. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about that. Like also when you think about how in the book, no one recognized Lila's eye. Like I wonder I don't really know how common, how likely it is that I've seen people with an artificial eye and haven't even noticed. Um, I have, and actually, they're pretty good. So you, they're, I mean, so did I've you seen know people like and didn't know they had a glass eye until someone told me? Okay, yeah. I mean, I would assume yeah. so. I mean, but I just like I'm curious how common it is. Well, <laughs> like how much I said, see it and don't see it. Yeah. Well, if you say what, how many people lose an eye every year? 10,000 to 12,000 lose an eye every year, but I don't know if that's... that's if they're cor- replacing it, yeah. Yeah, and I don't. I also don't know if that's, like, within the U.S. or oh, okay. over the world or what. Um, but they did say before eye, artificial eyes became common, people used to just wear patches over their yeah. eye. So that's where that kind of came from. So interesting. It was interesting. It also did kind of creep me out. I do remember I used to, like, be really interested in... Um, Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman doctor. Oh, yeah. And she had a glass eye at some point later in her life. I think she stopped being a surgeon or couldn't become a surgeon anymore when that happened. But I just remember, like, that, like as a kid, for some reason, that was, like, the person I was, like, most interested in reading about, even Aww. though I could never be – like, I can't even read about doctors because I hate blood and needles and all of that so much. But I was just so intrigued by her. But, yeah, so we don't know. So, Lila, we'll see. We will see about Lila. Hopefully we learn more about how she lost this eye of hers. Yeah. I hope it's not just a random, like, you know. But what was that joke I told? A, a pigeon pooped in it and then <laughs> she had just gotten eye. it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, what other backstory do we want to talk about? Oh, the queen. 
Oh, yeah. I love that we're getting her perspective. Me too. You are seeing more of this kind of motherly side of her, even though mm-hmm. she still has a stronger devotion to Rai. You do see a little bit of her kind of motherly feelings toward Kel, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, I think for me what was so important learning about her her backstory was that she never wanted to be queen and she never wanted to be a mother. Yeah. And she had this fear because she was really clumsy as a girl and she would break things and she just didn't almost didn't trust herself. And so I thought I thought it was kind of sweet when she was talking about how she met King Maxim and she loved him so much like and she knew marrying him would she would have to have a child if she married him mm-hmm. um, since he was the king. But I just thought like her fear was it really helps inform her character in the present mm-hmm. because she was saying like she was so afraid whenever she was pregnant with Rye and then because but then she she felt like at least you know he's still protected when I'm carrying him. But then she said as soon as she had him, she knew that she would spend the rest of her life afraid. I mean, I'm not a mom, but I think that is, like, a good way to try and explain the love you feel for a child. It's like, you know, you love them so much, but at the same time, you know you're going to spend the rest of your life afraid for them. So I thought that was actually kind of beautiful. And then when Cal comes, I think I think you see her viewing him kind of as a way to have another child without actually having to have one which is kind of weird Mm -hmm. because she was like I I wanted to have another kid for Rai's sake but couldn't bring myself to have another and how she said she wanted to raise them as brothers because she thought it would be really nice but she was afraid because they were so different but then as he gets older you start to see her being really afraid of him Mm -hmm. and and I don't know if she's afraid of his power or if she's just afraid because of when Rai was kidnapped and she realized that her son needed a guardian and so she wanted to raise Cal as his guardian instead of a son. Um, But I think like the heart of her, she's so afraid. And I think that was like, rather than make her seem like a weak character, I think it made her seem like a really honest and human character. And I kind of liked that we got that bit about her. I agree. And it really, I mean, even seeing a little bit from Kel's perspective, you don't really understand her coldness or her internal struggle until we start to see some of her kind of reflections and thoughts about all of this stuff to your point. And I also, I loved, I think it was Rye who called her on it and was basically like, you wanted, you got what you wanted. He's loyal to me and he loves me and he'd he'd do anything to protect me. What you didn't expect was that it's a two way street basically. And it works both ways. Yeah. Which I think is also true. I mean, yeah. And I liked, I also really liked, um, right after the, cliffhanger kind of is resolved and Kel comes back and Rye dies. I mean, he dies in the book and then he comes back to life. And he goes, he goes like all the way dead. Like he's back to what he was, like as if he had been dead the whole time basically is what it sounds like. Yeah. And I just love, I love the moment when Kel comes back in and the queen just, she just falls apart and she is crying, but hugging him at the same time. And you kind of see this like, conflict where she's so angry at him but she loves him so much because she loves her son so much and you can't love one without loving the other yeah but I still I don't know I still have an issue with her because I get that when she saw Rye die and then come back when Kel was there and she knew that he would come back because of you know all this like I get that but I'm still mad at her for not trusting or believing in it 
without seeing it. Just, like, knowing yeah. Kel loved her son. And if, like, he wouldn't have tied their lives together as, like, a power move or for fun mm-hmm. or whatever she might have thought before she actually saw it in action. Like, part of me is just mad that she didn't get it before she saw it. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Especially since she raised him, you know? And it's not like... It's not like she raised him from afar, you know? It sounds like she was very much involved in their lives when they were children. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious, too, to see what the king is up to right now. Oh my god, I know! He, like, disappeared off into his man cave. And he knows something about this floating pirate boat that the rest of them are out to go find because Lila picked up on the fact that he was hiding something, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But I just don't know what he's going to do because, I mean, I think the king is super smart and he was the one who, like, when a siren left Holland's body and jumped into the river and was poisoning the entire river and Kel and um, Kel and Alucard were, like, running around trying to mark people with their blood to prevent them from being possessed. Mm-hmm. The king called them back and he was like, we need a strategy. Like, you cannot run around willy-nilly. And so I think he has a strategy. Yeah. But I just... I'm so curious to know what it is and why he's not sharing it with anyone and why he's writing Rye, like, these letters that kind of sound like goodbye letters. And it seems like some people know, like, the queen knows or has an idea of what he's up to. Tiernan, it sounds like, knows or has an idea of what he's up to. But Rye and Kel and Lila kind of think they're running the show, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and I mean, I think it was a good plan that they had with... Uh, with Holland, how Holland was like, I want an execution, I want, we're going to try and lure a siren back into me, and then um, you'll use that spell, what was it called? Oh, Astosal, the confinement spell. Yeah. Just kind of, which is just so horrifying. Oh, yeah, that sounds, yeah, worse than death. <laughs> um, But then when that didn't work, I'm just kind of, I just don't know when it's going to happen. I wonder if, like, the um, spell they put on the people to put all the people to sleep will do something like if a siren doesn't have people to possess what that will do well it's also interesting he kept talking about his role as a soldier versus role as a king and how he needed to think like a soldier again or something King maxim yeah Yeah. so i'm just i'm curious his plan yeah i mean he's such a yeah i'm i I am curious to see how it plays out i guess it's the moral of the story i hope he doesn't do anything he he can think on so many lines at once or if he, know. if he is doing something crazy or risking his life, like, I hope that he does say goodbye to Rye and, do, you know, I hope he doesn't just leave him a letter when he, I don't know. I know. But, and I'm, but I'm just like, what are you, what are you doing that you can't tell people what your plan is? I'm just worried that, I'm just, I'm very concerned for the king. I know. Well, have we learned nothing, people? Have you read any book in our podcast? Don't keep secrets from the people who are on your side. It always ends badly. Don't do it. Although, speaking speaking of king-like behavior, I think Rai has really stepped up. Oh, I know. I loved when he went looking for Alucard and when he's, like, going around trying to find survivors, the Silvers, he's (laughs) really, um, you can see him coming into his kingship, which is, like, really really great to see yeah and seeing him find purpose again because it seemed like that's really what he you know without his magic and then having his life tied to Kel and all this other like he's finally found something that he alone can kind of do for his people and really embrace that right and you and you always saw him having 
kind of a sense of responsibility for his people. I know, mm-hmm. you know, they describe him as being kind of a flirt and, a ra- you know, a rake or whatever. But I think he always has felt the responsibility towards his kingdom from day one. And so it's really nice to see him kind of like finally step up and um, like become the king they need. Yeah. And to like, I yeah, rec- it's, it's really interesting. These silver veins. Yeah survivors and And Alucard's one of them now yeah although I'm really sad about his sister even though we didn't really know her I know because it seemed like she was really really fighting it which I guess is the the point it seems like people fight it and either they but then but then it's kind of unclear either they survive or they don't they either are turned to ash or they become the silver person if they fight him I don't know it's just yeah I'm wondering how many other survivors there will be and it was really creepy I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to pick, pick my favorite scene because we didn't do that for the last yeah. book. But I think the S and Tosh, Tosh was my favorite scene from yeah the second book for sure. But in this one, I, one of, I mean, my one of my favorite scenes is when they're trying to round up the people who are not possessed. And all of the ones who are, are just, they're just so, they make your your skin crawl because they're like why won't you let him in have you met the shadow king they're so creepy i know it's creepy just reading about it i can only Mm -hmm. imagine yeah being in town even i think one of my favorite scenes would be when kel found rye and alucard and alucard's sister on the boat and she's basically practically ash already she's she's gone but Mm -hmm. her body's still possessed and like oh man that I like think and I you might don't have know had if nightmares. Alucard, yeah, yeah, and you, and you didn't know if Alucard had succumbed to it or not. Yeah. I was so terrified that he was going to be taken by the by the fog. So well, I'm also curious about this thing. So they've kind of talked about how this is like pure magic versus humans, and this kind of relationship between humans and magic, and how they're supposed to be balanced, and they've accepted each other, and they need each other, blah blah blah. But for being pure magic, he seems to have very human emotions. <laughs> Oh, Siren? Yeah. <laughs> like, he, yeah. he hasn't admitted he needs a body yet, but he seems kind of petty or, like, to hold a grudge and to, like... He always wants more. Yeah. I don't know. Just something about him seems still so human to me, almost, for being just... Like, I thought it would be, because he's pure magic, he, like, kind of was motivated by different things. He doesn't seem to have any relationship or anything that he cares about, but... Well, he seems like an angry two-year-old. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really strong two-year-old who, yeah, selfish. But that makes sense, because yeah. doesn't that, like, don't they say, like, a human without the ability to, like, temper their anger or reason their anger or kind of control their emotions is, like, an a- the mentality of a two-year-old? It's like you kind of have no filter and you haven't yet learned to kind of restrain that part of your mind. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe that. Okay. <laughs> so maybe that's what Osiris is. He's just like raw energy, like uncontained, I don't know, power and emotion. Yeah. No, that's fair. But it also seems like he's like, oh, I learned so much from Black London. But as far as I can tell, he's doing the exact same thing he did in Black London. <laughs> Burning things up. Yep. <laughs> Burning through all the people. Um, so you're going to hate me when I tell you what I researched this oh, week. Oh no. What did you it research? It ties into this so much. <laughs> so I was really fascinated by this fog, this poison that is going around possessing people. So I researched <laughs> demonic possession. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> 
this is the part where our listener base drops to zero. <laughs> <laughs> One big bummer after another. That's what our podcast is all about. That's us, doom and gloom. <laughs> All right, I won't make it that crazy because I know you don't like stuff like this. <laughs> no, I just get but freaked out so easily. <laughs> I know, and I won't, I won't make it too freaky, I promise. Okay. So I started researching just the idea of possession and the idea of not necessarily demonic possession. Mm-hmm. Of course, later I went down a huge wormhole that I do not recommend, but... <laughs> I'll, t- I'll <laughs> let you go down there by yourself. <laughs> and we never come out. Um, so the idea of spirit possession is really interesting because it's, it's found in nearly almost every religion and in so many societies and so many different forms. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about possession, immediately think of Catholicism, um, you know, demons, angels, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so I learned, I learned about some other types of spirit possessions that are common in the, in the greater world. So, um, in Islam, there's the idea of a jinn, which is, um, they're spiritual beings and they are said that they can possess humans. Mm-hmm. And in Egypt, um, a lot of people consider sleep paralysis to be an attack by a jinn. And I don't know, have you ever had sleep paralysis? Is that just when you wake up and you can't move? Mm-hmm. Yes. Wait, have I ever told you about the time I think I was haunted? Oh, no, I don't think so. But I get sleep paralysis really badly too. So I want to hear about yours. Okay. Well, this was just, I was, I had like woken up, but I didn't need to be anywhere yet. So I was, I was visiting my aunt. I was in my cousin's room. She was at college and like, you know, I was kind of in that, like I'd woken up, but I hadn't decided to read or get mm-hmm. out of bed because I didn't have to be anywhere for a little bit. So I was like awake, but not really just kind of dozing. And then All of a sudden, I couldn't move or open my eyes or talk or anything. And I felt someone, I think, come into the room. I thought it was, like, my aunt to check on me, but I couldn't, like, turn over until I was awake. Like, I wanted to be like, I'll be down in a minute. I'm up. But I couldn't move or open my eyes. And then I felt a hand on my shoulder. And as soon as the hand touched me, I, like, moved, but I still couldn't open my eyes. And... Then all of a sudden it was all gone. Like the hand was gone and I could open and talk. And I, I felt like someone had come and found me in bed and then realized I wasn't what they were looking for and left me alone. Ooh. Like that's how it felt. And then I found out that my cousin, whose room it was, had thought she was being haunted at school. So I was like, does this ghost or whatever think that I'm my cousin and was trying to find me in her bed? It was the scariest thing oh though because God. I felt like I was fully awake, but I just couldn't move or open my eyes or do anything that's- until... This experience. Exactly. That's exactly what sleep paralysis is. Because it's It's terrifying. It's it's the worst thing ever. I get it all the time. And it's supposedly it's like a disruption in your REM cycle. So like when you fall asleep, you're supposed to go through levels and then when if you wake up too quickly, it disrupts it somehow. And it yeah, it, it it makes you feel like you're paralyzed and so many people report hallucinations during it. Oh my goodness. So how long does it last? Like, it felt like it was a long time, but I bet it wasn't. So how... For me, I don't... I mean, for me, it usually lasts maybe five minutes, if that. But for me, it, it it feels like I can't get up and I can't move. And I'm, like, straining so hard to, like, snap out of it. And for me, luckily, I don't get, like, hallucinations or anything. Well, I, I do, but they're not super scary. I For me, I can see what's going on in the room around me. So, like... 
I used to get it at college a lot. And I would remember seeing my roommate just like walking around doing her own thing. And in my mind, I'm like yelling at her, like, Jenna, like, wake me up, wake me up. Yeah. Me, like, get me out of this. And I can see everyone going about their business, but I can't move, but I can see everything. It's so scary. And the only way that I have found to like get out of it is I have to just let myself go back to sleep. Like, you have to just kind of like relax. Oh, my goodness. Like, but it's the hardest thing to do. Oh. Yeah, especially so that, when it first happens and you don't really know what's yeah. going on. Yeah. But so in in Egypt, a lot of people believe that you're being possessed by a jinn. Okay. Um, and also in ancient Egypt, people believed that certain animals possessed knowledge of the future. So uh, crows, moles, and hawks were said to import kind of like prophetic abilities to people. So they would eat the heart or essential organs of these creatures and... Um, they believed that the spirit of that creature would inhabit them and turn them into oracles. Okay. Which I thought was interesting. So they would eat then, the heart? Mm-hmm. Okay. Of the animal. Uh, and then in Bali, there's a practice called Sangyang, where you undergo voluntary possession. And uh, you enter into a trance, and it's like a sacred state. And it, um, you're saying that you're accepting helpful spirits and accepting them into your body and they inhabit you temporarily and they are said to cleanse you of evil influences so in that case the possession is supposed to be um like a a purifying thing so it's kind of the same idea as holland inviting osarin and accept that they're good guys right okay exactly and then there's less (laughs) helpful spirit (laughs) so i have a question though if you if you open yourself up to spirits in general how do you know if it's a good one or a bad one that's a really good question i mean maybe it's like a roll of the dice (laughs) i'm not sure is it like a i'm only gonna pick up this hitchhiker if i know you're not a serial killer (laughs) he's not carrying a chainsaw (laughs) um okay so then i was just researching exorcism (laughs) (laughs) just casually I found some interesting stuff. So, okay, I guess in 1614, Pope Paul V published the first rites of exorcism, and it was kind of a rule book on how to perform an exorcist, and it was an effort to um, kind of prevent... This is from CNN, by the way, CNN.com. It was an effort to uh, stop people from performing exorcisms kind of willy-nilly back then. So a lot of people thought that people were possessed when they really were not so they would you know perform exorcisms on people who had epilepsy or bubonic plague and in a lot of ways it was um you know saying that someone was possessed was an attempt to kind of explain things like mental illness or epilepsy um explain disorders that they didn't really understand i have a quick question is exorcism a catholic thing or is it a larger thing than it's larger than that i mean it is yeah, it is has it does have roots in Catholicism, but the idea of exercising demons out of you is a definitely a wider thing. Okay, just checking. Okay, go on. Um, so in 1614, there was this treatise that was published, and it was kind of the first thing that said there was a firm difference between mental illness and possession, and it, which was kind of, I mean, forward thinking if you if you think about it. So it was the Pope saying that like exorcisms do not should not have anything to do with medicine. Like, we should be really careful that we're treating people who need treatment for mental disorders and, and trying to put a distinction between it. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So they said that... Oh, and then in 1999, the Vatican released a new set of rules for performing an exorcism. Um, and they said that one may only occur if you've consulted experts in the medical and psychiatric sciences... And they also have a media blackout. So the presence of media is not allowed during an exorcism to prevent it from turning into a spec, like a spectacle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it can only be performed by an ordained priest. And so I guess can any, sorry, I'm interrupting again. Can no, go ahead. In Catholicism, do you have to be like trained in exorcism or do you, can every priest do it? So all Roman Catholic dioceses can have an appointed exorcist. Um, so they they will have someone on hand who is authorized to perform exorcisms, and they have to obtain permission from the bishop, from the local bishop. Okay, so every Catholic priest cannot perform an exorcism, but in it, but you can find a you can find the appointed will. exorcist. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, in that diocese, yeah. And so they said that signs of demonic possession <laughs> are. Um, you know, a lot of people who were said to be possessed suddenly were able to speak different languages without having any prior knowledge. So Latin, you know, is a popular one. They'll so- suddenly start speaking Latin or having supernatural abilities and strength or knowledge of information that they would have no way of knowing. So this was interesting. There was a guy called Dr. Richard Gallagher, and he was he studied medicine at Yale and he was a board certified psychiatrist and he teaches at Columbia, and he um, he is a strong believer in demonic possession and exorcism, and he's now the person that the church calls to kind of oversee exorcists in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And he said that he was convinced because he saw people suddenly speak Latin. He, saw, he once saw a 90-pound woman throw a 200-pound deacon across the room, and he was just like, this completely is beyond the laws of physics. So I think that's pretty interesting. And his job is to help differentiate between mental illness and possession. Well, I think I've mentioned this before, or maybe not, but my sister down in Haiti has seen like unexplainable things Mm -hmm. with, I think, people speaking languages they don't actually know, um, people really reacting to church artifacts Mm -hmm. in like crazy ways that aren't like normal teenager behavior at all you know not like something where you're just like oh they're acting out and you know incredible strength from young small people and yeah all kinds of stuff like that yeah and they said um i guess some of the rules too are you know once you they say that an exorcism is a confrontation it's not really a right and there's a certain set of steps you have to take um and then once you begin it you have to finish no matter how long it takes and in hmm. that belief is because they think if the exorcist would stop the, the confrontation, the demon would pursue them. Um, and so hmm. there are four steps to an exorcist and okay. to an exorcism. And the first one is called the pretense. And that is when the demon is hiding his true identity. The number two is the break point when the demon reveals itself. Uh, three is the clash. And that's when the exorcist and the demon fight for the soul of the possessed. And then four is expulsion. If the exorcist wins, the demon leaves the body of the possessed. What's like the win rate? Oh, that's a good question. So I was trying to find priests, interviews by priests who had who had performed exorcisms. 
And um, so there was one, Father Gary Thomas, he says that he has performed 50 to 60 exorcisms in the last 10 years. And there's various levels. So he says he can perform up to two a week for demonic attachment. But um, in a case of fool possession, he said only about one out of 5,000 requests are for fool possession. And he said that it takes at least six months in order to um, fully reclaim their Eradicate. Yeah. yeah. But mm-hmm. they didn't say about the success rate, but he said that he usually meets with people for about two hours a week over um, the course of six months. Or is it just like you have to get to stage four when you <sighs> like... I think it's like you just keep going until you get to stage well, four. So here's the so here's the problem. The thing is that like there have been a lot of cases where people are performing exorcisms on people and it results in the death of the person. Mm-hmm. And I mean there's been a I mean, I don't know if you've I'm sure you have not seen the exorcism of Emily Rose, but I have not. That was But I've seen some other uh like law and order crime show drama type stuff where okay. occasionally there's an exorcism that goes wrong. Yeah, well, so in that case, like, she, Annalise Michael was the woman who inspired that movie, and she actually died of starvation after 67 exorcism attempts. And so, wow. and her parents um, believed she was possessed, and the German authorities, they blamed her parents and two priests for her death, and they put them on trial for murder. And they were found guilty, and they were sentenced to, to jail time. So, okay, that's an interesting point. So her parents requested the exorcism in that case. Mm-hmm. Does, I mean, if you're possessed by the devil, would you, like, know it and want, and, like, be able to ask for it? Or does someone in, intercede on your behalf and, like... I think in some cases... Is it against your will or is it with your will? I think in some cases it is with your will, but, I mean, the argument is, like, from a science... Well, not science. From, like, a medical perspective, you would want to say... Um, if someone is delusional, if you have a patient mm-hmm. who has severe mental illness, you know, how fully aware can they be? And mm-hmm. a lot of people in the medical community criticize exorcisms because they say, you know, the worst thing you can do to a patient who is delusional is confirm their delusions. Like the whole goal of therapy is to reorient people with reality. And so telling them that they're possessed by demons just kind of distracts them from what the real problem is. And so, yeah. yeah. Unless the real problem is that they're possessed by demons. I know. I mean, the thing is, it's like, it's hard to... No, for sure. It's hard to make a judgment here. It's kind of just like, here are some cases where people thought it was the best, the best solution. And, And in most of these cases, it was, you know, they had been treating them. They have been giving them medicine. They had been trying to address it from a medical perspective and didn't have success and so and a lot of times it was like a last resort kind of thing but yeah it was just it was really fascinating it is it's I like it freaks me out to think about too much because what can you do against a demon like if you're actually being possessed by the de- like I don't know, mm, I don't know. but it made, me think of, it made me think as I'm reading um Cassandra Clare's City of Bones series, finally. And it's all about, like, demons and angels. And I was just like, ooh, this is kind of an interesting parallel to be researching this. I haven't read that one yet, but I might have to check it out. Yeah, totally. And I was reading, um, did you ever listen to the podcast Wormwood? No. Um, It was, came out a while ago, but I was really obsessed with it a while back. And they, there's an exorcism that happens in that podcast. It's like a, it's a, it's a drama, like a fictional drama, but 
it's really good and they talk about like the five or the four steps of the exorcism in the um, comic books that they released to go along with the podcast so it was kind of fun researching this and going back through those stories as well well I mean I think it's just it's so interesting like yes if someone has a mental illness or some other you know situation that is not a demon but explained by science medical mm-hmm. research etc obviously you wouldn't want to put them through an exorcism but they're I mean but maybe they do <laughs> well yeah I mean think about like how powerful the placebo effect is mm-hmm. you know so it's just like if you believe that you are possessed truly and you go through a ritual that maybe helps you feel better I mean who's to say I don't know I mean I've but had also if if the devil is there possessed like I mean <laughs> yeah that's true you, you know like it's, it's, <laughs> we're not like, ruling out how, anything here <laughs> yeah what else yeah I don't know. I had a crazy experience with the placebo effect in college. I bought, I knew I was going to have to pull a bunch of all-nighters. And so I bought Mm -hmm. just black tea, like caffeinated tea. And I was drinking all this tea and like putting like five tea bags in a cup of tea of hot water. And I was like powering through like all these all-nighters. And I was like full of energy typing away. And then I, when I graduated, I went to clean out my cabinet and I looked at the tea and it was decaf. (laughs) I love it. And I was just like, oh my God, the placebo effect is real. It's a real thing. (laughs) It's kind of nuts. Yeah. No, it it is. It is a real thing. Okay. But also sometimes medicine and other things do help. So, you know. (laughs) Take your medicine. This is not a podcast for medical advice. Please speak to your real doctor before... Adjusting anything. <laughs> we should put um, a caution <laughs> statement on this. We're not here to give any advice. Okay, so what do we think is going to happen in the second half of this book? I mean, honestly, I have so many <laughs> thoughts that I'm not even sure about. I kind of think Maxim's going to die. Mm-hmm. But like willingly or like sacrificially, you know, like something, yeah. his own fault kind of. He'll fall I think the sword. That, yeah, I think ultimately... You know, Osaran's going to be defeated. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there'll be, like, a shift in the balance of power between Londons. I was going to say, I don't think that Black London's going to come back. I think something's going to happen with Grey London, Mm -hmm. but I'm not sure what exactly. I'm not convinced that all the main characters are going to make it. I know, especially now that they're leaving. Half of them are leaving to find this inheritor, which we just learned about. This device that transfers magic. I also, can I just make a side note about Alucard in this book? Oh, please. I can't get enough of him. Well, I like, I loved him in book two. I feel like he hasn't really been himself in this book. Like, he hasn't had, I don't know. I think you're right. I guess that makes sense from his experiences, but like, I felt like he'd be a little bit more resilient than he's been in this book in terms of like his personality shining through, which there hasn't been as many like jabs and stuff that I've grown to love about him. (laughs) That's so true. And I, but I think... To your point, like you said, I mean, I think him seeing Rai almost die really mm-hmm. broke him. And then his family. and yeah, yeah, and just like... And I think he's a little bit out of his comfort zone in like this environment versus on the ship with his crew. Totally. Blah, blah, blah. Where he felt yeah. really in control. And he was, you know, he was the captain. And now he's kind of, I think, forcing himself to, f- to feel his vulnerability and feel that he is young and there are people that he loves who are at risk now and that's really scary so i think i think you're right i do yeah. miss him i just miss i miss 
Belila, Alucard, Bickering. <laughs> Although he, and I just feel like we haven't gotten very much of it this he, time. They he, haven't really interacted that much. No, but he does have some really great exchanges with Cal. <laughs> he does, but that feels less, like, snarky and more, like, makes my stomach clench. Like, ugh. I know. They do not like each other. <laughs> they really don't. I think, I just, I, Cal really needs to, like, stop interfering with Rai's love life. I'm just going to put that out there. Well, also, though, Rai kind of needs to be, like, Look, Kel. I can handle it. I know. But I'm okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, back off, bro. I can handle it. Let me, yeah. I'll let you know if I need you. Right. My gosh. He's, I mean, I love that they're so protective of each other. But at the same time, I'm like, you need to give them some space. Like, they can figure it out on their own. Because, like, I'm really protective of my sister. And I wouldn't even be as aggressive to someone's face as Kel has been. Yeah, yeah. And, and I hope we... I hope we learn more about why they broke up, too, because we still don't really have that full story, so maybe, I don't know. Yeah, and he was going to tell us, and then I was like, I don't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we were like, shut up, Rye, because we really do. <laughs> yeah, right. just let him talk, man. That teasing is just driving me crazy. I just want to know everything. <laughs> yeah, oh. all at the same time. I do love how it keeps switching between points of view and, I mean, even, like, um, people dying, too. You know, like, I do love how she'll go into someone's point of view and then they'll, like, die that chapter or the next time they show up. Yeah, I mean, we've lost Kisimir, we've lost, um, we've lost... Like, Ashka. Ashka, yeah, we've, we've lost a lot of people. I just hope everyone makes it out alive that I care about. The wind guy. You know, I kind of... I, I don't, I kind of hope someone doesn't make it out alive, but I don't know who I'm rooting for as the person to die this time. Maybe Kel. No. Would Kel be a good one? Yeah, but it would be so martyr martyrish, you know? Yeah. Do you think Holland's going to make it? No. <laughs> as much as yeah. I would like to see him, for, I think Holland's almost beyond saving, you know, which is kind of sad. Yeah, I'm just so curious to hear more. We're getting more of his backstory. I still want to know more. I still want to know more and more and more. Oh, you know what I'm curious about? What? The um, the princess Cora. Oh yeah, I did not like oh, that yeah. scene. I didn't either with her and Rye because I was like, no, Rye belongs to Alucard. Don't make me start liking you, and don't turn out to be a good person, Cora, because I'm not rooting for you and Rye. Although I do feel like that scene, she did. I mean, she was like, "Is it true that your heart belongs to someone?" So like, I kind of feel like they're not, but. I don't know. I'm not saying full sentences. I'm just worried that, like, she's going to be revealed to be actually kind of a nice girl. And I I just, I hope he doesn't end up with her. And I'm worried that that's the direction that it's taking. It just wouldn't be right. She's so, she seems so young. And, like, with everything they're going through, just, like, she doesn't really get it, though. Like, I just feel like, how could Rai? No. And that's not going to happen. Okay. I don't good. know. Maybe it is. I just really don't want that to happen. <sighs> I agree. But I kind of feel like she, if she becomes more of a character, especially, she needs something else like a friend or a love interest or a power mm -hmm. play or something she needs something well she yeah because in the past she like was finally starting to show more of a depth to her instead of like this kind of spoiled little princess and so i was like oh maybe she'll turn out to you know be a smart caring kind person Although I was kind of curious with all three rival empires there, if at some point there's some other kind of power struggle or even mm -hmm. once they defeat the demon, if, you know, that magicless brother army guy makes a move or I don't, I don't know. 
Man, I am kind of curious now that we still have all three empires. It doesn't make sense for anything to happen while they're still defeating Osarin, but I wonder if someone will position themselves so that, like, we'll get a victory there, and then, I don't know. <laughs> well, let's keep reading and find out. Okay, okay, sounds like a plan. So finish the book, finish the series for next week, ah, Yay! and then freak out for, like, a little bit and come listen to our podcast. Yeah, and V.E. Schwab, just write more short stories for me so I can keep following them yes please okay tell me a joke this week okay so i had this joke that really wasn't funny and was kind of long so i just went to trivia right before we recorded and i met this guy named scott and i was like scott do you know any dad jokes and he gave me this one thanks scott yeah thank you scott if you ever listen to this i just met you today and i told you i have a podcast so i'm sure you're now an avid follower (laughs) okay so (laughs) a roman soldier walks up to a bar holds up two fingers and says i'll take five (laughs) <laughs> i just looked at him and started laughing and the whole bar stared at me <laughs> that's really good <laughs> it took I me a also, minute to get it and then i was like oh, yeah that's funny i also just thought you should know that i really like to count in roman numerals like in your head no like in song what <laughs> there's a song it's a children's song it's called 18 wheels on a big rig and you just count to 18 a bunch of different ways but there's this one verse where they count to 18 using using Roman numerals, and it's my favorite thing. How do you count you in Roman numerals, though? <laughs> oh, there's I, 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 I. No, I, no, no. Wheels on a big rig. That's how and that was goes. that was eighteen. Is what you just did? I just yeah, I just counted to eighteen in Roman numerals. Right. I performed that at a talent show in college once because I have no other talents. <laughs> did you win? No, I didn't even. I went to a different dorm talent show where I didn't really know anyone, and that was my talent. <laughs> and I think everyone was like, "Who is this girl?" God, that's so funny. <laughs> I can't believe you even had that memorized. That's well, the know, most song stick yeah, in your I head. So, but... oh my There's God. also a song about coffee, which I'll save for a different oh, okay. time. But, um, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, on that note, <laughs> bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.